There's a difference between knowing a truth and knowing what to do with it. And in life, we don't just want to be right, we want to be wise and helpful. So are you the sort of person who gets lost in circumstances and justifications, or are you the rare sort of person who rises above and discerns the best and highest path for progress and purpose?
Please join me in prayer this morning. 
Some of us have been at this prayer thing for a while and learned how to talk and listen. And you can kind of tell those people. You pray with them and there's like this presence, this peace and power and sweetness. And some of us maybe have never prayed before or we've shot up like, help, SOS prayers. Um, and I just want to invite you this morning to um, quiet down and breathe in God's presence and breathe out whatever's on your mind. If there's fear, breathe in, focus on God and breathe out whatever comes to your mind. Where there's fear, breathe in faith. Where there's anxiety, breathe in peace. Where there's desperation, where there's struggle, where there's pain, where there's trauma, whatever comes to mind, God cares about those things. So God, we invite you to speak into the things that come to our minds. And we thank you that you care about all of them and you long to speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Teach us how, Lord, to hear you for whatever we're facing in this season. We also pray for a joy and celebration for the good things that we see around us as well. Thank you for the, the things that you drop in that help us walk through well, that help us be people of grace and truth and love and kindness and generosity. God, we thank you for your heart that it's for us. We love you, Jesus. Amen. We're getting lots of inquiries this week about when we might be able to gather as a church. We had planned to gather uh, by mid-July. That's not going to happen. Our landlord uh, has um, not allowed us uh, to regather on the campus yet. Obviously, there's been an infection spike in our country. Uh, there are new rules in Hawaii having to do with, with uh, mass restrictions and social distancing restrictions. Uh, our landlord has opened the Palama campus to its own programs. Uh, but is not opening the campus uh, to uh, our programs for the foreseeable future and now really won't even talk to us about prospective timelines. So we are in limbo and I'm afraid that's just the way it is for a while. Two questions. What's really going on with this virus thing and what can we as a community doing about it? As for what's really going on with this infection spike, uh, one, I just want to say um, uh, be careful uh, with the stories that you're getting from the various media outlets because the information on the virus that you're receiving is now more politicized than ever and that's just really unfortunate. Um, uh, I tried to read a lot of the original studies and, and to do a lot of objective analysis to the best degree that I can uh, and here's what I think is, is really going on. Um, I don't think that the spike in infection rate is due to states reopening per se. Uh, the reason uh, I say that is because states reopened significantly a month before we saw this infection spike uh, and uh, some states remain fa fairly shut down still, particularly in areas and in those areas we are still seeing infection spikes and this infection spike mostly has to do with young people 
getting the virus, not other demographics, which tells you that the infection spike is driven more by their behavior than by general policy. Fortunately, young people uh, are fairly impervious to the effects of the virus. They don't die from the virus generally unless they have underlying health conditions, but they can pass the virus to people who are more vulnerable. So we need to be very careful with that. What can we do going forward as a community I think we need to realize that this is kind of the new normal, that this is the way it's going to be for a while. And as a society, uh, we need to figure out how to live and how to work in the midst of virus risk. Um, and, and I think the best thing we can do is to just be sensible and to do the things we know are helpful. Wash your hands all the time. Wear the mask wherever it seems sensible to wear the mask maintain your social distancing. Most of the population, you don't have to worry about, but there's a segment of the population that's very vulnerable. You have to protect the kapuna. You have to protect elderly people, and you have to protect people who have underlying health conditions. We need to focus on them, and the rest of the stuff uh, we can uh, relax about a little bit, but be mindful of those who are most vulnerable be careful around them. One additional thing that I might say to the Christian community is just keep in prayer those areas of the world who are worse off than we are, those poorer areas of the world. Because right now, even though we're not seeing this in the national headlines, there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people dying, not just from the virus, but from the effects of the global economic shutdown that uh, was a result of the virus. So we're seeing massive food shortages and massive medical uh, shortages and medical care skewing that are resulting in deaths. As tough and frustrating as this is for us, there are places around the globe where it's much, much worse and we need to be mindful of that. We're gonna keep you posted, many changes uh, in our ability to gather together. In the meantime, we're gonna do some creative gathering type events that at least affirm and strengthen uh, community ties because I think our faith community is more important now even than it is under normal conditions. Thank you for hanging with us. Thank you for uh, sticking together in faith and love. Uh, be caring wherever you can. God bless us. Good morning, Blue Water. Well, our hopes for regathering in the Palama Gym will continue in the form of planning and prayer for the time being. And join us in prayer as we continue to wait to resume services at Palama Settlement. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter so that we can keep in touch with our current events. You can do that by going to our website, scrolling to the bottom, and entering your email address. Well, despite not meeting in big church, we've had Zoom meetings throughout the quarantine, and some Ohana groups have begun limited physical gathering already. And we know a lot of people have joined us during the time of quarantine, and those newcomers haven't had the opportunity to benefit from the collective wisdom of the whole community. So, let's do this for our community warm-up today. Here's a question. What are one or two pieces of, it, of advice that you would give to a new believer to the church? Let's hear from our Blue Water community. To really dive into the Word of God, to know and study God's character and the truth of who He is and who you are in Him. And then also, I think, 
my favorite part too is just having a relationship with him. Like talk to him like he's your brother or sister or friend sitting right next to you and like share things with him um, so that it becomes more relational and um, yeah, personal. I would get into the Bible because the most beautiful messages are sent from God through the Bible, especially when you really need it. And you wouldn't expect it, but it just kind of pops out of you. Yeah, I think being in the Word, talking to God, listening to God is a common theme. Um, I, would, I would recommend that they get one of those Bibles that has notes in it um, to kind of, you know, as they go along, confusing passages they have some notes they kind of explain some background or you know history or whatever so they have more context i think that's always helpful to um make sense of what some of some of what the bible is saying we usually do encourage like reading the book of john community reading the bible and i think we typically do encourage baptism of the holy spirit earlier like yeah. just like just get the extra power now to get to know Jesus by reading the Bible um, and also getting to know Jesus through talking to him by praying. I love the wisdom of our Ohana groups. Thanks so much for those pieces of advice. One of the other things our community does to practice regular generosity is to give a tithe. You can do that by sending your checks via post or online. And if you're new or visiting, please feel no obligation to give. Some additional opportunities available this week are 24-hour prayer starting at 8 a.m. next Saturday, Ohana groups happening throughout the week, and for this week, a special calendar item to consider. Uh, today and throughout the week, one of the most meaningful programs of the year is happening, Ho'olohe Pono. Ho'olohepono is an immersion experience into the native Hawaiian community, and several of our Blue Water leaders and members uh, participate and lead this immersion. Uh, this is a timely program which delves into the subjects of justice and faith and the native Hawaiian community. And there will be several sessions on Zoom. Check out our website for more info on that. All right, kids, stand up. Let's pray for you. Oh Lord, we thank you for our children. We thank you uh, for the ways that they teach our community. Uh, kids, be immersed in Jesus, in his word, in his love. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's a difference between knowing a truth and knowing what to do with it. And in life, we don't just want to be right, we want to be wise and helpful. So are you the sort of person who gets lost in circumstances and justifications, or are you the rare sort of person who rises above and discerns the best and highest path for progress and purpose? I've been thinking a lot this week about discernment, uh, about, about wisdom, and one story that always pops into my head when I think about discernment and wisdom uh, is a story that on first pass seems a little innocuous. It's not so impressive, but it was really meaningful to me. At the time I was living in Boston, I had just finished grad school and I was working for um, a think tank at uh, Harvard. And I got involved with this church and was 
in a, a small group uh, at this church, a small fellowship group. And um, the group was, as a group, caring for this uh, single mom uh, that had shown up at, at the group. Uh, she was in some troubling circumstances. Uh, she had one young son and uh, she was in tough material straits. Uh, she had no money, um, didn't have a stable place to live. And none of us in the group had a ton of money, but what we did is we gathered our resources, pulled our cash together, and uh, we're gonna help her pay her bills, get her into a, a stable rental situation. And then someone in the group, it was not me, suggested that uh, before we give the gift and give the plan, we get together and pray that it would go well. Uh, and so we got together one evening and we prayed and prayed uh, that it would go well and prayed for direction on what to do. Now I had, at that point in my life, lived many years in what you might call a lifestyle of generosity and justice. I and mean, giving was, was a big deal in my life. It was a big deal uh, in Sonia's life. We were uh, certainly married at that point. And so it was kind of uh, automatic for me uh, to give and to be generous uh, to people in the situation that this woman found herself in. True religion is to care for orphans and widows and their distress, we read in the Bible. So this seemed kind of automatic. So I was praying in sort of a pro forma way. I was going through the motions. In the middle of our group prayer time, the spirit just hit me. I remember it felt like a punch in the chest. And God said to me, do not give her this money. Do not do it. So I really took me aback. I had to pray through it a little bit. And what I felt like I understood from the spirit was that, well, if you give her and her son this money right now, if you get them into a stable rental situation, she will consider her problems solved and then drift away from the church because she doesn't need the community anymore. And that's going to end very badly for her, Jordan. So you need to withhold the money and zig instead of zag. And I shared this with the group. And at first people were kind of taken aback, like, are you sure? And then I remember one other person in, in, in the group felt like, oh, maybe I'm getting something similar to the Lord. Long story short, it worked out. Uh, we didn't make the gift. We instead walked the long distance with her uh, and, and things ended up going relatively well for her. And I think the group learned a lot in the process. But the real story for me, the real story in that story for me uh, is that I learned that the obvious the obviously good choice is not necessarily the best choice. And it was a relatively you know, mild example of that, but I've never forgotten that moment. I've never forgotten what it felt like to me. There's a difference between asking yourself, what's the right thing to do? And asking yourself, what's the best thing to do? We are in a sermon series out of the book of Acts. We're kind of in the middle of the book of Acts right now. Um, and a lot of things have already happened. The church has gotten started. We've seen the early Christians sort of invent church. Uh, and now what's happening in the rest of the book of Acts is the early Christians are inventing outreach. They're inventing international missions. And all of the stories are really cool because they're so creative and so, so seminal. Um, we uh, preached last week out of Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 15, uh, most of the big leaders of the church get together. They have what's called the Council at Jerusalem, and they wrestle through 
the essentials of the gospel because what's happening is now people from all different races and countries are joining the church and uh and the christians are realizing that that they can't just kind of be jewish in culture and tradition they need to open things up and they need to figure out what's really core about the kingdom of god on earth uh, and they come up with some uh, good answers to that uh, they send around uh, this letter so that everybody's on the same page um, and uh, one upshot of this is that Paul uh, grabs a new partner named Silas and they go on another missionary journey into a Gentile, non-Jewish, uh, Greek and Roman uh, territories. Uh, and we're going to pick up the story uh, this week uh, as Paul and Silas have uh, come to a town called Philippi. What's happened is that Paul had planned to go uh, one way uh, through uh, the Middle East and, and sort of near Asia. And he's had a vision uh, that has forced him to kind of go uh, northeasterly up into uh, what we would now call um, uh, Macedonia, maybe Greek, more toward the, the Greek side of things. I don't know. Uh, and uh, so his, uh, his direction is now being guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, is what's going on. Uh, when they arrive in Philip, uh, they meet a woman named Lydia, who becomes sort of the host for the church plant in Philippi. Uh, so we get a story about a strong uh, female leader in the early church, uh, which is great. And this is the rest of the story of Paul and Silas's time in Philippi. Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. One thing you notice right away is that the narrative has now uh, switched to plural first person. Instead of they, it's now we. And Luke, who is the author of this gospel, has now joined Paul's team. And so now he's telling the story in we form. Once when we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Well, that's very interesting. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Is that true or is that false? That's actually true. Uh, this demonized slave girl, through encouragement of the demon, they're following around Paul and Silas and shouting out truth. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled, some translations say annoyed, that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates, uh, the, the governors, and said, these men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. It's actually not true in detail, but that was the charge. 
The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, just whipped to shreds, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So they are really strung up here. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Well, that is a good attitude in the midst of a very tough situation. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. You can all get in on this. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. It's pretty cool. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Then it was daylight. It was a full night. It was a full night. And then it was daylight. The magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, with the order Release those men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. I think the idea was to release them and kick them out of town. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. That was something that people didn't know about Paul. He was actually officially a Roman citizen and they had certain rights. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though I'm actually a Roman citizen. And they threw us into prison. That's all against the law. Now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come out themselves and escort us out. That drips with, uh, with brashness. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Oh, busted. They should have given them a little due process. They came to appease them. They came to appease Paul and Silas. That must have been interesting. And escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house. That was the church mama. They went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. And then they left. They take, took their own sweet time about it. Cool story, right? Kind of a long story. Thanks for going through that with me. 
the church has been figuring out in the book of Acts how to essentialize the kingdom of God, and they have found that the world attacks the kingdom on one side and religion attacks the kingdom on the other. They're trying to walk the straight and narrow in the middle of it, and that takes a lot of discernment. It takes a lot of wisdom, and what I love about this account in Acts chapter 13 is that it is just filled with discernment and wisdom. Uh, there are a lot of things in this passage that could have gone a different way. A lot of choices that Paul could have made differently. There are things in this story that make you go, hmm. There are a lot of things in this story that kind of bug you when you think about it. Uh, so let's just start at the top and go through some of these things and see if we can figure out uh, the nature of Paul's particular discernments and pieces of wisdom. First of all, the story opens and this slave girl who is demonized, right? She's got an evil spirit controlling her. She's following around Paul and Silas and saying, hey, these men are of the true God and they're telling you the truth and the way to be saved. In other words, they've got a demon following them around, affirming them. Hmm, everybody. I mean, that's, that's freaky, right? That's freaky. So a couple questions here. Why in the world would a demon do that is the first one. And if it was a problem, why did Paul wait for days before casting it out of the girl and solving, solving the issue? Both things make you go, very interesting. Um, <clears throat> One thing that occurs to me uh, is that a strategy that Satan has sometimes is that he tells you one true thing in order that he might slip in a lot of lies later. Uh, this is actually a favorite strategy of cults everywhere. There's a lot of these cults that are kind of spinoffs of Christianity, and what they do is they... they uh, they embrace one big principle of Christianity and they just preach it like nobody's business. And it makes them sound credible, right? As if you'd really want to trust them. And I think that might be going on here with this fortune telling uh, evil spirit. If, if you are a demon who is deceiving people through uh, the business of fortune telling, what you do is you, you say some true things, you know, and you make people think like, ooh, wow, how did this girl know that? She must be very insightful. And then you slip in one lie because you've convinced people that you are a truth teller. It's very easy to deceive them later. Are you following me? You following me? So this is actually a fairly common strategy of the enemy. The enemy. Um, embrace one truth and then slip in some chaos later because Satan doesn't need to contaminate everything in your life. He just needs to contaminate one area, and eventually that will grow to cripple you, right? That's kind of how he works. That's kind of how he works. And that's how his henchmen work as well, and I think that's the story here. It's interesting that, that uh, Paul and Silas uh, kind of wait to confront this, but I think, you know, in, in uh, a short amount of time, uh, Paul figures it out, figure, figures it out. Uh, this sooth-telling demon uh, is it's not about the truth, it's about control. It's saying enough truth just to grab control of people so that he can ruin them. 
common strategy. But again, note all of the other strange choices that Paul makes. Why wait to cast the demon out? Um, they get tortured in the middle of this story, right? They get dragged in front of the author author authorities. They get severely flogged, not just flogged, right? Not just beaten with whips and their backs torn apart. They get severely flogged. Some people didn't survive that sort of thing. Um, and then later on in the story, Paul says, oh, that was illegal. We're actually Roman citizens. You weren't allowed to do that. What's the obvious question here? Why didn't he say that before he was severely flogged and thrown into prison in the stocks, right? I mean, what in the world makes you go? Could have played that differently. Could have played that differently. And then later in the story, we get a, a miracle, right? They're in prison. They've just been beaten to shreds. They're praising God at the time. You know, they can't sleep from the pain. So what do they do? They sing hymns. Probably not the choice I would have made. Uh, I probably would have sung my complaints unto the Lord. But these guys are praising and they're kind of, you get the impression that they're leading all the other prisoners in the jail uh, and praising God, witnessing always. Uh, that's a good sermon in and of itself. And then this miraculous earthquake happens. Uh, it's, we know that it's miraculous because it shakes the foundation of the prison. All of the doors fly open and the chains suddenly come unfastened. So a supernatural event that frees Paul and Silas and incidentally, all of the other prisoners in the jail. All right, so is that, is that a miracle of God? Yes or no? Yeah. And if you experienced that miracle, what would you assume God was up to? He, you would assume that he has just set you free from prison. And what would be the appropriate thing to do in that case? Walk out of prison. <laughs> to do anything else would be to insult the miracle that God has given you. But Paul and Silas, they play it differently. They hang out there. And when the jailer says, oh my gosh, everybody has left, I'm going to kill myself, right? Paul's like, no, no, we're still here. Why are you still there? But they're still there. So they end up saving uh, the jailer's life. And you, know, you get the rest of the story. Uh, that jailer uh, becomes a Jesus follower and his entire family, entire house. They, Paul and Silas become his house guests. I don't know what happened to the other prisoners. You know, my sense is that they're included as house guests. I mean, it's probably a very impressive night for those prisoners as well. It's just like a crazy night. And this is all happening in the wee hours of the morning. You know, not only have Paul and Silas been beaten into an inch of their life, but they've been up all night. And uh, after doing a bunch of ministry, uh, so, you know, a, a, a zig instead of what would have been an obvious zag for Paul and Silas in that situation. Um, and then they get an apology. Once they have declared their Roman citizenship, Paul and Silas get an apology. They've got the magistrates in the palm of their hand because the magistrates themselves could have been thrown into prison uh, and, and uh, prosecuted for what they did. Uh, and uh, so now Paul and Silas kind of have the keys to the city, but they leave anyway. Now they don't have to leave the city because they are Roman citizens, they have a right to be there, and they have been mistreated, but they decide to go anyway. They decide to do what the magistrates originally suggested that they do. Why? You know, why leave when they didn't have to, when they weren't actually being driven out? 
anymore. So all sorts of interesting questions in that story. Everybody, one more time, give me a big hmm. Mm. Thank you. Here's how the story should have gone, obviously. So what should have happened is as soon as the demonized slave girl started following them around, if there's a demonized person and you are Paul, what do you do? You would cast that demon out because we don't like demons. We certainly don't like demons who are controlling poor girls. We certainly like demons who are controlling poor girls who are slaved and oppressed. So the obvious thing to do would have been to cast out the demons right there on the spot and just taking care of the situation and then turn and lecture the crowd about how Christians have authority over demons, right? That's what he should have done. And then having seen the miracle, Paul probably uh, should have taken that crowd and, and done a miracle working session, right? Healed a bunch of people. And then when uh, the authorities got upset, he'd had all of these healed people and freed people to protect him from the accusations. Uh, should trouble have ensued from that? Uh, Paul and Silas probably should have declared their Roman citizenship on the spot, which would have uh, avoided the flogging and the imprisonment and established their right to speak their mind freely in public, like all Romans were entitled to do and thereby they would establish their right to preach in that town and the right of the Christian church to be in that town, right? Mm -hmm. That's how this should have played out. But it didn't play out that way at all. And you have to ask yourself, well, why did Paul do the things the way that he did? Why not cast the demon out of the little girl right away? And I think this is an example of that old adage of wisdom. You gotta pick your battles. You got to pick your battles or you have to pick the timing of, of your battles. You notice that when Paul finally did cast the demon out of the little girl, things melted down very quickly. A lot of people got upset at him. He was uh, destabilizing an important status quo in that culture. Uh, and so immediately, you know, they were grabbed and, and arrested and the authorities waited in. I don't know if... Paul foresaw all of that happening, or if he was just trying to pick his battles. Uh, you can't fight on all fronts constantly. One favorite strategy of the enemy in our lives is to distract us from the important battle by giving us other battles to fight, right? You know that this is the thing that you need to be conquering in your life, but this wildfire pops up and suddenly you give all your attention to that and neglect the important thing that's going on. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can somebody give me an amen? amen? So some battles, although obvious and right, are nonetheless distractions from the battles that are perhaps less obvious, but wise to fight. And Paul is trying to maintain the most important focus in this story. It does say eventually he gets annoyed. Eventually he gets worn down. He's like, all right, this has gone on far enough. Now I need to turn around and handle it because you can't let these things go on forever, which is also a great life principle, uh, cast, cast the demon out. But I think that might explain his behavior. Uh, why not escape when the miraculous earthquake happened and the prison doors flew open and all of the chains miraculously uh, came, became uh, unlocked, un, un, undone? There's probably a meditation on true freedom here. Like if I was a decent preacher, uh, what I would preach about is like, you know, it's, 
it's not just being freed from your earthly chains, right? It's being freed from your spiritual chains and from your heart chains. And the fact is, while Paul and Silas were in that prison, their hearts were free the whole time. The chains were immaterial, really, um, because they were praising and singing God and testifying, even though the prison doors were shut. If I were a good preacher, that's probably the sermon uh, that I would preach. Um, <clears throat> but maybe, you know, there was even more to that. Even though Paul and Silas were freed materially in the moment, the prison doors literally flew open, the chains literally fell off. <clears throat> Paul knew not to just rush ahead, not to assume that he understood everything that was going on. Like maybe, you know, freedom is a goal, but maybe in the near moment, there's even a higher goal. And I think as soon as the jailer said, or it became clear that he was gonna kill himself, that the jailer was in despair, he stopped because there was a, a person he had an opportunity to bless right there. He made the choice that, you know, blessing that person might be the real reason that this happened. Maybe the real reason they all got freed is so that they could convert that guy's family. Now that wouldn't have been obvious in the moment the prison doors flew open. But a discerning man like Paul picked it up, you know, and didn't rush ahead to the obvious solution. There's a hidden piece of discernment in this story, uh, which is this. Uh, you notice that in the rest of the passage, nobody mentions to the authorities or the crowds that in the middle of the night, they were all miraculously freed. Nobody mentions that because if they did, they would have outed the jailer, mm -hmm. right? What do you mean? You let them out of prison and took them to your house for a meal and a bath, right? And so he doesn't share that story, even though perhaps automatically you would think, oh no, he should share that story with the whole town because it glorifies the miracle working power of God. But he kind of keeps it quiet. It's like, no, maybe that, maybe that big miracle was just for this guy's family, you know? Great little hidden piece of discernment there. Why bring up Roman citizenship after the fact. I mean, if you go to the trouble of hiding your Roman citizenship so that you could get publicly tortured and then jailed, why then bring it up after the fact? You know, is it just to guilt people out for mistreating them? Uh, you know, I, I, maybe the reason Paul allowed himself to be tortured in the first instance was just so that he could display the spirit of sacrifice and confidence. I mean, you're establishing a new church. One of the things you want to make plain to new Christians is that this path, though a path of freedom and power, is also a path of sacrifice. And to see these two apostles get beaten within, to within an inch of their life and jailed is an illustration that no new Christian in Philippi would have ever forgotten. Right? We're still reading about it today, in fact. Maybe Paul had enough self-control, enough discernment in the moment to think that through. He would have had to think very quickly. Think that, no, it's important to take your licks for Jesus. It's important to always take the humblest road possible because that almost always releases some sort of testimony and power. You know, maybe humility is more important than, than rights uh, in, in this instance. But after the fact, it's good for him to say, oh, incidentally, we are Roman citizens. Uh, we were mistreated because it testifies to the nature, I think, of, of Christianity, uh, the nature of the gospel. It's as Roman a thing as any other thing. 
you persecuted us because you thought that what we were doing was un-Roman. That was the accusation, as you recall. In fact, dude, we're Romans, and you did the thing that was un-Roman. Think about that. Now, would you like to reconsider our message and our gospel, please? You know, sort of brilliant and strategic, and all it cost them was a whipping and a night in prison. Who's in? Yeah. Fascinating stuff, right? High wisdom here. Um, also, of course, telling them, telling the town that they were Roman citizens left the door open for them to return later. The next time they showed up, uh, the town rulers would have treated them very differently, very differently. And the town leaders would probably treat the new Christians very differently, knowing that they had mistreated them at the inception of the Philippian church. Why leave town then, now that they had the, the high moral ground? Well, I don't know. Maybe it was just to show the town or the town leaders that Christians weren't troublemakers, that that really wasn't the point, that they were willing to be good citizens. They were willing to be gracious. They were willing to be humble, even though, in fact, they were truly powerful. And that's a great testimony to leave behind. In any case, we cannot deny that Paul was a guy who rose above circumstances and rose above simple justifications and, and instead found the wisest paths forward, or at least really tried to find the highest and wisest instead of things that were merely uh, justifiable. Uh, given choices, he had a bevy of choices in this story, Given choices, he exerts, I mean, what would you call it? Patience, you know, awareness, mindfulness. And one assumes he also kept his ears open to the leading of the Holy Spirit during the midst of all of this. I mean, we do see him in the middle of the night in prison, interacting with God, praising God, praying. So one imagines that the Holy Spirit may have helped lead him through some of these crazy choices that he made. But he tried to act wisely instead of just simply acting rightly. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Ultimately, he was trying to do the thing that was most fruitful and most helpful instead of just doing the thing that was obviously right uh, in the moment. Uh, I have a phrase for this sort of thing uh, that I have been using uh, for a while. I call this third level living. How's that for the name of a self-help book? It'd be pretty good, right? Third level living. Uh, this, is, this is how I think about levels of living. First level of living, do what you want. Second level of living, a little higher, do what is right. Third level of living, do what is wise. And that's a little bit different than merely doing what is right. Now, these things are not mutually exclusive, right? The thing that is right, excuse me, the thing that you want can actually be the thing that is right, which can actually be the thing that is wise. They can all go together, but not necessarily are they always identical, right? And it leads to different places. If you want to have a good day, do what you want. If you want to have a good lifetime, you got to learn to do what is right. 
if you want to do good for the whole world, well, then you have to learn to do what is wise. And they're progressively harder, aren't they? These higher levels, progressively harder. To do what is wise and helpful is an added level. It's a higher level to doing what is just kind of obviously right uh, in, in the moment. So I, I would like to encourage everyone today to live life at the third level. And the more complicated or contentious your situation is, the more important that you get the hang of living at the third level of doing what is wise and helpful and fruitful instead of just doing something uh, that is right. There are truths and principles of God that are unchanging and always reliable. And if you learn those principles, if you learn what is right, in other words, uh, you'll, always, you'll always do pretty well. Um, knowing what is right, knowing what is godly, will always give you pretty decent ideas about what to do in any and all situations. And that is a huge advantage. You're not gonna go wrong by doing what seems right to you. That's always gonna be at least pretty good, pretty good. Um, but there are often multiple ways to do what is right and acceptable in a given situation. And in a complicated situation, there are always multiple choices uh, to do right and decent things. Um, one of those ways is ultimately going to be the most fruitful, the most helpful. And sometimes maturity or wisdom lies in trying to find the best path among a multitude of good paths forward. So that's what we're talking about here. And Paul was great at that. I think in such complicated situations, it's not, it's not so much about taking a second look at things or second guessing things. It's not about taking a second look. It's about taking a higher look. That's how I think about it. Um, what's, what are the highest goals that I can serve right now? in this complicated situation? I think that's a vital question to ask. What are good goals that I can serve right now? That's actually a fairly easy question to answer. What are the highest goals that I can serve in this situation? You know, and there are levels to goals. You know, if the goal is to do what you want to do, that's, that's pretty simple. If the goal is to do something that's justifiable and seems right, it's a little harder, but pretty simple. If the goal is to glorify Jesus and bring the kingdom to the people around you, well, it's kind of the highest goal, isn't it? And that sometimes takes a little reflection, maybe a little counterintuition, maybe a little prayer, maybe a moment uh, to figure out, you know? Think about uh, the demonic battle that Paul and Silas first faced in Philippi. Well, you know, the right thing was, there's this poor, oppressed, demonized girl. She's really had a hard go in life. I'm gonna cast the demon out of her. How could that possibly be wrong? And it wouldn't have been wrong for Paul to cast the demon out of that girl right away. But instead he let some days pass. You know, there was a larger situation that he was trying to keep track of. Maybe his highest goal wasn't just to free this one poor oppressed girl great goal, but maybe the highest goal was to plant 
uh, a church of solid Christians in that city so that in future days, any number of poor girls like that girl could receive freedom from the ministry of the church, you know? So Paul was not dominated by the moment. He played a longer game. Perhaps that was going through uh, his head. You know, when he was faced with being publicly whipped, you know, it wouldn't have been wrong for him to say, wait, I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights. You guys need to be true to yourselves and to let us speak. This is a free speech moment, right? Um, and that wouldn't have been wrong. That would have been a good affirming thing for him to do. But maybe he was thinking a longer game. Maybe he was saying, ah, it's actually more important for me to give a picture of what faith, humility, and sacrifice looks like. Uh, Christians never flinch in the face of persecution. Maybe that's a testimony that will last for ages. Maybe someday there will be a book compended and people will call that book the Bible and it will be important to have this story in the middle of a historical account of the early church. He might not have thought that, but he could have. You never know. Uh, he was playing a higher game. He, uh, he went up higher and had a bigger vista to see. Are you following me? Yeah. So, you know, if you're faced with a complicated or emotional, confusing, or critical situation, I don't know, take a moment. Take a breath. Uh, resist the swirling currents around you for a second. Uh, think about the long game. Think about the higher game. Think about the highest purposes that you can think about uh, in that moment. Shrug off that first wave of emotion that comes on you whenever a threatening or destabilizing situation faces you. You know, of course, open your spirit to the leading of God in that moment. Maybe he's going to whisper something to you. Ask yourself, is there another level to this that I need to see? Is there a higher level that I need to see right now? And if so, does that encourage you to zig instead of zag? Does it lead you to a slightly different conclusion now that you see more? In contentious situations especially, it can be important to remind ourselves not just to argue about what is right, uh, but to, dis to instead see if you can discern what is wise and helpful. Because what is right is not necessarily the wisest and most helpful thing uh, you can do. Maybe there's a different sort of right that you can pursue. Sometimes I think to myself, I can win this argument or I can be a godly blessing to this person. But sometimes I can't do both. Sometimes it's more important to be helpful uh, than to win the argument. That's a good principle for marriage, by the way. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It's also a really good principle for parenting. Uh, it's a really good principle for pastoring. And in general, it's just a good principle for being a blessing in the world. So let's end uh, by asking ourselves this. Is there a, a situation in your life right now in which you need to rise to the third level. Maybe it's not about what you want. Maybe it's not even about what you first think is right. 
maybe you need to go that higher level and think about, well, what's the wisest, most blessed path forward in this? Is there a situation in which you need to rise to the third level to see things at a higher level? One of my favorite Proverbs comes from Proverbs chapter 14. Maybe a lot of you know it. There is a way that appears right to a person, but in the end, it leads to death. Oh, I remember learning that proverb when I was a teen. You're like, well, this seems right. This seems right. In the end, it might lead to death. Maybe I need to think a second time. Maybe I need to think at a higher level. That same proverb pretty much exactly appears two chapters later in Proverbs 16. There's a way that appears right to a person. Nevertheless, in the end, it will lead to death. Careful, people. Careful. Think it through. Consult with God. Live life at a higher level. Live life at the third level. Actually, uh, you know, pro tip, all of Proverbs chapter 16 has stuff like this in it. Uh, if there were one chapter of Proverbs, I could suggest that America reads right now. I, because we are in such contention about different crises, you know, and everybody's, everybody knows what is right. Everybody knows what's right. But maybe there's a, maybe there's a third level. Maybe what we really need to be reflecting upon is what is the wisest and most helpful uh, thing uh, that we could pursue. Anyway, Proverbs chapter 16, lots of great stuff. It's a good meditation for everyone on any side of all the stuff uh, that we have going on right now. But what about, what about you? You know, is there a situation in your life, particularly? Maybe it's more local. Maybe it's more personal to you. Um, hold that situation before the Lord. Ask yourself, um, what are the highest goals that I can serve in the midst of this situation? What are the highest goals that I can pursue as an outcome to this situation. Father God, I pray for a spirit of discernment and wisdom in your people. There is a way that seems right, but it might actually lead to further trouble. Among all the paths that are justifiable for us, Lord, I pray that you would show us the ones that are actually the most helpful, the most edifying, the most fruitful. And it's not necessarily about what we want, Lord. It's not about what is justifiable in our own minds, our own arguments, Lord. It's about uh, what will bring the kingdom to everyone around us, that will establish the kingdom of God on earth. Not our will, Lord, but your will be done. Let your kingdom come, Lord, and I pray that you would give us the grace to be agents of it. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a sense of our own authority and power such that we don't need to grasp at freedom. We just live from a place of freedom. I pray, Lord, that we'd be able to bring uh, freedom and healing in all situations. That we would be able to bring faith 
in a center of great uncertainties and panic. I pray, Lord, that we would be confident in your provision in a situation of material anxiety. I pray, Lord, that we would establish true peace in situations in which there is no peace. Let us be as Jesus, true Christians. In Christ's name, everybody says, amen. Hey there, Blue Water Ohana. Thank you so much for joining with us in worship today. Hope you're getting a chance to get outside a little more, maybe getting back to some of the normal pace of life. Now, even though we're not able to gather physically as a church yet, there's an opportunity in every season. And just like Jordan preached about, about Paul and Silas, may we have heavenly wisdom to not simply respond to what's right in front of our noses, but being able instead to have a larger, longer perspective and walk into a higher good. If you need that kind of wisdom, or maybe you have another need, maybe for physical healing, or you have a situation of family or, or work, or maybe you just want to get to know Jesus better, you can email julie at bluewatermission.org. Please include your name and your phone number, and someone from our prayer team will be happy to call you back between 10.30 and 11 today. Hey, we love you guys. We're praying for you, and we believe that God has important, exciting things for us in this very season. We don't want to miss it. So let's take a breath and ask for his heavenly perspective, a long, high view, and the greater good. Have an awesome day, and we'll see you soon.